It's either a violation of the innermost core of the Hippocratic Oath or a humane, compassionate solution to a problem that exists today. Today we'll be speaking with a member of the Oregon Department of Human Services and discussing the reality of their controversial Death with Dignity Act. You're listening to ReachMDXM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg, your host, and with us today from the Oregon Department of Human Services is epidemiologist Dr. Katrina Hedberg. Welcome, Katrina. And can we just go over for one second the Death with Dignity Law and how it works? Yeah, the Death with Dignity Act was a ballot initiative passed by Oregon voters. It's been in effect for uh, 10 years now, slightly over 10 years, and it allows terminally ill Oregon residents who are adults and are capable of making and communicating health care decisions, it allows them to receive a prescription for a lethal dose of medication that they can take voluntarily. And they have to swallow this dose themselves, correct? That's right. It's for oral medications is how it has been interpreted. Is this a liquid or pills? There is nothing in the statute that specifies what medications should be prescribed or how they should be done. So it's really up to the physician. There's a lot of physician choice in here. There is a lot of physician choice. Exactly right. When people call and ask, they say, well, uh, they're curious about Oregon's program. I say there isn't a program. This is really uh, passive legislation, which allows patients to ask physicians, and it allows physicians to write them, but no one is obligated to participate, and it does not specify anything about which medications. It protects physicians from being arrested for assisted suicide or murder or whatever we'd be charged with, correct? That is correct. So who are the people who are actually choosing this? What type of patients? Over the past 10 years, there have been 341 total patients who have participated. It's about equal men and women, a slightly more men, about 54% than women. When we look at numbers of people who participate, the median age is 69 years, and the numbers increase when it, with increasing age. But of course, that makes sense because there's more older people who develop cancer or terminal illness than younger people. But if we look at rates, that is, for of those younger patients who have cancer, for example, the rates of participation are higher with people of younger age. So they seem to be choosing it in higher numbers. The vast majority of patients have been either white or Asian. That does reflect the population of Oregon, but the people who participated have even been more white than the rest of the state. There have been, for example, no African-Americans who've participated over the years. I think one of the other things in terms of the demographics is that the people who participate are very well educated. Most of the people who participate have had some college education or not only have a college degree, but may have advanced degrees, and particularly, again, for the median age of 70, to have 40% have a college education or more is much higher than in the general population, so a very highly educated group. The diseases that people have had are primarily cancer. More than 80% of the patients participating have had cancer, and again, that probably reflects the idea that you have to have a prognosis of six months or less to live. But if we look at rates, again, by underlying disease, highest rates of participation have been in persons who've had amyotrophic lateral sclerosis or Lou Gehrig's disease. So again, not as many numbers because we don't have as many people who've been diagnosed with that. 
In terms of end-of-life care, 86% of the people have been enrolled in hospice, so very high levels of hospice enrollment. And I know that this actually reflects the degree of hospice access we have in Oregon, and not every state has equal access to hospice that we do. Just a couple more things. When we're looking at the motivations, and these are reported by physicians that their patients express to them, we have not interviewed the patients themselves. But most patients are really worried about losing autonomy, losing the ability to participate in activities that make life enjoyable, and concerned about losing control of bodily functions and those kinds of things. Increasing number of people, and, and this is concerning, but have been expressed some concern about inadequate pain control. That may not be that they are currently in pain, but they're worried that their cancer pain will not be well controlled. So that sort of in a nutshell is the people who have participated to date. Have you or are you allowed to ask the religious background of these people? Well, it's interesting. When we set up the reporting system, again, the statute, we're neutral about the law itself. And the statute assigns to us the responsibility of monitoring compliance and, you know, looking at participation and issuing an annual report. The monitoring compliance means that if we find any, anybody who doesn't follow those steps, we report them to the Board of Medical Examiners. But when we first set up our reporting system, we said, well, you know, this is the prescriptions that are being written. People are also interested in who is taking the medication. And so, and because we have access to death certificates at the public health division, we then look at who, which people not only got a prescription, but took the medications, and we interview physicians after the patient has died to determine whether or not they've taken the medication. That's when we get this additional information about the patient. And at that time, we had an advisory group to help advise us what kind of questions should we ask physicians. And we thought, well, we should ask questions about something that we might be able to, uh, you know, that, that the state might have a role in, such as access to hospice or pain control. But we didn't feel like it was our place to be asking about religious conviction uh, one way or another or political affiliation or those kinds of questions. So we have purposely not asked questions about uh, religiosity. All right. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Reach MDXM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg, and I'm speaking today with Dr. Katrina Hedberg, epidemiologist with the Oregon Department of Human Services. And today we're discussing Oregon's controversial Death with Dignity Act. Katrina, who are the doctors who are writing the prescriptions? I understand that like 45 physicians wrote 85 of the pres- all 85 prescriptions. What happens, there have to be two physicians involved in the process at a minimum, and there may be more. Now, a number of the patients may have a family physician who's their primary care provider or even an oncologist, and then they might have someone else who's involved in palliative care, et cetera. So they may have their own physician. Now, in a lot of the state, again, this is only happening with 49 patients last year, and there may be a number of physicians who themselves are not comfortable writing the prescription. So even if they're the primary care provider, they may choose to ask someone who has been more familiar and has done this in the past. So, for example, the advocacy organization does have some physicians that might assist the primary care provider in trying to determine what the prescription is, etc. So, looking at the physicians who write the prescription, it's been across the board. There have been a number who have only written one or two prescriptions, but there have been a couple of physicians that have written more than 10. And again, this may be there have been physicians who are advocates for this, who then will serve as a consultant physician to primary care providers or others who've had less experience um, with these patients. What happens after the prescription's written? The doctor comes in, comes to the patient's home, says, here's your prescription. How do we know what happens from that point on? So 
again, most of the physicians are involved with the patients and they're seeing them on an ongoing basis. The statute, however, only talks about, it's a permissive legislation, it talks about the steps up to the point of prescription is written. So if the physician knows what's happening, obviously they report it on the form, but there is nothing in the statute that compels a physician to either know whether the patient has med- taken the medication or not or to follow them. A physicians might retire, patients might move, there might be a number of things, and patients could potentially be lost to follow-up. You don't really know then. If the patient took the medication or not, you just find out when the patient died. That's correct. And we, I mean, we believe we know whether most people took them or not, but there have been patients who have moved and we would not, if they're lost to follow up, we would not know whether or not they've taken the medication. Do you have any anecdotes or stories from physicians as to what it's actually like emotionally to write a prescription like this? I think the answer is yes. And my feeling is that this is not easy for any physician. Most of them take these requests very seriously. One of the things that we've heard is that in particular, you know, physicians, as you said in your opening statement, have been trained primarily in curing patients. Palliative care is a relatively new field. And so to to write a prescription that essentially means that the patient can hasten their death, these are terminally ill patients, but they are hastening the death is the reason they're taking this. I think is extremely difficult for a lot of people, including people who are advocates for this. We also have anecdotes from physicians who've told us that they personally oppose the legislation. They voted against it. But when confronted with a patient who themselves really wanted to have control over the manner and timing of death, chose to either write the prescription or to refer them to someone who they knew would write the prescription, even if the physician themselves did not feel like that was appropriate for them to do. Are there counseling resources for physicians who write prescriptions, or do they just walk away? That's a good question, and I don't know. If those are available, it would be through things like the OMA, et cetera. I'm sorry, the Oregon Medical Association. There has not been anything that has been set up by the state or by the advocacy group, to my knowledge, to assist physicians who are involved. Right, because in Holland, we've spoken to a physician in the Netherlands, and they actually have counseling groups for physicians because it's such a traumatic thing to write a prescription like this. That wouldn't surprise me. Again, the way that this legislation was written is really a permissive legislation up to the point a prescription is written. There really isn't an Oregon, quote, program. People don't sign up for it. We also, because of confidentiality, not only do not release names of patients, but we don't release names of physicians. If a patient calls me and says, you know, gee, I'm interested in finding a physician, I refer them to hospice as part of -of end-of-life care. I give them the name of the advocacy organization with the understanding that they are advocates and they have a political agenda around this as well, but we don't assist in linking people up because, again, we're very worried about the confidentiality of physicians. So, Katrina, let's talk about what happens when the prescription is actually written or the patient takes it. Can you compare this to Holland, or the experience in Holland, rather? Because in Holland, a physician can either inject a medication and actually assist in assisted suicide or has the option of giving a patient a prescription to drink. They don't have that option here. So tell us what happens. The medications in Oregon are all orally ingested and they're barbiturates. In fact, some of the people have fallen asleep before ingesting the entire dose of medication. And so they take longer to have response to the medication itself. So the median time between ingestion and unconsciousness was five minutes. So that's pretty quick. But there were a number of people who 
who lived for not only several hours, but even as long as a couple of days. And two years ago, we had one individual who took the medication and then woke up after taking the medication. My understanding in the Netherlands is that when people ingest the medication, the physicians then do have the option of giving the patient an injection, but that is prohibited by Oregon law specifically. So we have reports of people regurgitating the medication, again, someone waking up after taking the medication. So the response to these drugs has not been uniform. That said, the majority of people fall asleep pretty quickly, and the median time between ingestion and death was 25 minutes. So the the majority of people are dying within an hour or two after taking the medications, but it's not uniform. Christina, thanks for being our guest today and speaking with us about this very sensitive subject. I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM157, the channel for medical professionals. ReachMDXM is here for you, the health professionals who care for your patients. We welcome your questions and comments. Please visit us at ReachMD.com or our newly redecorated website with our on-demand podcast features will allow you to access our entire program library, including this very important show. Register on the website and enter promo code radio for six months of free podcasts. And we thank you for listening. This is Dr. Beth Torini from the University of Michigan C.S. Mott Children's Hospital in Ann Arbor, Michigan. You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals.